Let's pray and give thanks to God. Lord, we're so grateful to be able to be here as a church. Um, thank you that uh, we're, we're all so different, we need different things today, and yet because of Jesus, we are here together. That is our bond, that is the thing that we have in common. We have him and the, and the salvation he's brought to us. And I pray especially as uh, we, some of us are new, uh, some of us have been away, maybe as students for the summer and we're fresh back, Lord, that we would enjoy getting to know each other. Um, and I pray especially for these small groups, that over time, um, real friendships and relationships would grow. Um, maybe these friendships aren't natural, aren't normal, um, but because of church, this is, this is what we do. And I, I just pray for a real help in that, to get to know each other and to love each other and look after each other. And we thank you so much that you are the God who speaks. You speak today through your living word, through your Holy Spirit. And so we trust and we ask, we beg of you, speak to us so we may hear your voice and you may change our lives as individuals, but also together as a church. We ask most of all that you show us more of Jesus. In his name, amen. Okay, if you'd like to um, have your booklet open, that would be a big help. Um, and we'll be getting into Luke a little bit. But before we get to there, um, there's, there's an old jazz song, um, which I think Jamie Cullum covered, anyway, it doesn't matter. But it's called If I Ruled the World. Okay, listen to this. Really interesting lyrics. If I ruled the world. If I ruled the world, every day would be the first day of spring. Every heart would have a new song to sing, and we'd sing the joy every morning would bring. If I ruled the world, every man would be as free as a bird. Every voice would be a voice to be heard. Take my word, we would treasure each day that occurred. If I ruled the world, every man would see the world was his friend. There'd be happiness that no man could end. No, my friend, not if I ruled the world. Every hand would be held up high. There'll be sunshine in everyone's sky. If the day ever dawned, will I rule the world? I find that really interesting, this idea of if I ruled the world, all these things I'd fix, all these wrongs I'd make right. If you ruled the world, what would you fix? What brokenness would you fix? What sadness would you undo if you had the power to do this? And for some of us, actually, that might be a very, feel, a very personal question. You know, you, you feel tonight that longing to change things in this world, in your life, in the life of those you love. What if God ruled the world? What would he change? What would he fix? What would he do? Which is an odd question, what if God ruled the world? Because he does rule the world. Now, we believe that God is the ruler of the world. But, honestly, why doesn't it always look that way? Is it that God is out of control? Is it that he's kind of fed up and folded his arms and he's, he's holding back and it doesn't look like he's fixing all the things that we would fix? Surely if God ruled the world, he'd have a plan to make it all better. Well, the good news is, literally the good news, the gospel, is that God hasn't left our world of oppression and pain and sadness to run on hopeless forever. That is the good news. You see, right from the moment when we ruined things, and we've been getting into this on Sundays, in Genesis, in the garden, right from that moment, God had a plan. A plan which unfolded where he started making promises, um, giving hopes throughout the Bible, showing that he's the God who does get involved with this world, who does have a plan to rescue for himself a new people and make a new fixed world. And we're going to land in... Luke's Gospel, this term. And in Luke, we have this decisive moment where we see, 
finally God's reign and rescue, his kingdom, come. We see God's rule and rescue come because we see Jesus come. And so in this series, as we go through this little slice of Luke, we're going to see afresh God come and rule and rescue us in this broken world that we long to fix, that he longs to fix. We're going to see his kingdom come. But before we get to Luke, we need to go to Isaiah. Just wondering if I get that. Thanks, Nicola. We need to go to Isaiah. Because the Gospels don't drop out of the sky. It's, I, it's very easy to look at the Gospels as if they're chapter one of the story. They are not chapter one, they're like chapter 40. Okay? But we're going to go to Isaiah. Because um, Isaiah is a big deal in the Old Testament. Page 747 is where we're going to start. Because throughout the Old Testament, God, like I said, has been building up these promises and these hopes and these expectations that he's going to come, he's going to do something, and, and his kingdom is going to come and he's going to rule. And Isaiah, of all the books perhaps in the Old Testament, is just explosive in the expectations that it sets for this rescue and reign that is going to come. Isaiah ramps things up big time. So let me set the scene for you in Isaiah. We've got God's Old Testament people, Israel, who um, he loves, but they have been unfaithful to him. Radically unfaithful for decades and decades and decades and decades, generations. And there are always two big dimensions to their brokenness and our brokenness. And we're going to see this in a moment. The two dimensions to their brokenness are vertical and horizontal. By which I mean they don't love God, that's the vertical, but also they become a people who do not love each other, a people of injustice and oppression, the vertical and the horizontal. Let's see this in Isaiah 59, page 747. Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. But your, he's talking to Israel, but your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Do you see the, the vertical, the relationship with God that's broken? For your hands are stained with blood, your fingers with guilt, your lips have spoken falsely and your tongue mutters wicked things. No one calls for justice. No one pleads the case with integrity, etc., etc. So do you see the two dimensions? They treat each other with this injustice and oppression. They've got blood on their hands. And the root of that is that they've rejected God. They, their sins, their iniquities have separated them from God. And God is going to punish them, he's saying in Isaiah, your future is bleak, you're going to go off into exile. But into that despair, an indictment of God's people comes hope in Isaiah. And like I said, the hope gets really big. And we get this promise that God himself is going to come and rescue them and fix it all. That's the big thing in Isaiah. I myself are going to do it. Uh, same page, look down to verse 15. 59 verse 15, the second half. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw, saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. Here we go. So his own arm achieved salvation for him, and his own righteousness sustained him. So we get God looking for someone to rescue his people, and then saying, I'm going to do it myself. God will do something. God will rule and rescue his people from their rejection of him and their injustice against each other. So then the obvious question is, well, how is God going to do this? How is he going to rescue his, his people? Enter a man. This figure who builds up in the book of Isaiah. 
someone who is an Israelite man, who gets talked about as Israel, but also who seems to be God himself coming to rescue his people, who will finally bring the kingdom of God. And we read about him in all sorts of places, but here in Isaiah 61, here's this figure who's going to come. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, etc., etc. It goes on and on about what he's going to do. And God's people get taken away into exile as punishment. But then they do come back, they return back to Israel, but still this moment, this figure hasn't actually come. He's not arrived. And the centuries pass for the people of Israel, and they wait, and they wait, and there's silence from God. Nothing. Until Luke chapter 1. So turn then to Luke chapter 1. Page 1025. Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Luke says what he's writing. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. That's what Luke's talking about, the things that have been fulfilled among us. Okay, now go to the, the other bookend of Luke, to the end. Luke chapter 24. If you want to know what a book in the Bible is about, look at the beginning and the end. It often gives you a clue. Luke chapter 24. We have this silence for centuries, and then we have Luke writing about things that have been fulfilled, and then page 1062, Luke chapter 24, verse 44. This is Jesus at the end of his ministry saying, he said to them, his disciples, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be, there's this word again, fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, oh, you mean like Isaiah, and the Psalms. So Jesus says, I have fulfilled all of those promises and those hopes and those longings, like in places like Isaiah, have been fulfilled, Jesus says, in me. And Luke says, in him. So Luke as a book is all about fulfilment of God's big promises and hopes to rule the world, to bring his kingdom. And then in our little slice of Luke, which is Luke 4 to 6, Jesus himself, he's no longer a baby, he's on the scene, and he says himself, I am the one who fulfills these big Old Testament hopes. Here I am. I'm going to rule the world and make it better. So let's look then, finally, at Luke chapter 4. And verse 14, we're ready to get into this now. We've got the big picture context. We've got the Luke context. We're ready to get in to Jesus' ministry and what he says. Page 1031, Luke chapter 4, verse 14. So Jesus has just been tempted in the desert by the Holy Spirit. He's resisted. And let's see what happens. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet 
Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is, see it, fulfilled in your hearing. Do you see what Jesus has done? He's taken that big Isaiah hope of this person, this God-man who would come and bring the kingdom, he says, right here, right now. It's me. And that is what we're going to be exploring over the next few weeks. Jesus, this spirit-filled man from God, the Son of God, who's come to bring the kingdom. So let me introduce to you our little summary of this section of Luke that we're going to be looking at. And we're going to look at this each week, and it might help you to memorise it. And there may be jelly babies for people who do. Okay, uh, this, is, this is really helpful. To, and, and basically every study, every week that we do, will in some way draw on one of these themes. So it, it will really help you to get a feel for the whole series. So this, this is um, our summary. Jesus starts the best year ever with more people than ever in the kingdom of God forever. Lots of evers, easy to remember. Jesus starts the best year ever with more people than ever in the kingdom of God forever. Those of you who are writing that down, I'll let you finish writing it down. And we're going to spend the rest of our time just now working through that statement from, this, from these verses so you can understand a little bit more. Okay. In fact, let's say it together. That'd be fine, wouldn't it? All right. Are you ready? Okay. Three, two, one. Jesus starts the best year ever with more people than ever in the kingdom of God forever. Let's try it again. Jesus starts the best year ever with more people than ever in the kingdom of God forever. Excellent. Alright, so let's go through that now. Let's explore what each of those lines mean and how we get that from this passage. So first, let's think about Jesus starts the best year ever. So Jesus says he proclaimed, he came to proclaim, see at the end of, uh, in verse 19, the year of the Lord's favour. That's like the climax of this little speech. What's that about, the year of the Lord's favour? Well, Jesus is referring to the year of the Jubilee. Now in Leviticus, God gave his people this incredible, special, best year ever. Every 50 years, there was this wiping of debts, this giving back of land, setting free of slaves. It was, it was this, this time of justice and equality that, that God gave in his law. You can read about it in Leviticus 25. So you have this jubilee year, the year of the Lord's favour. Now, in Isaiah in particular, this idea of the year of the jubilee has become not just one year every 50 years, but this promise of a whole new era, the best year ever. This time where God's kingdom would come and rescue and reign his lost people forever. Okay? 
So it got ramped up. So when the people in Nazareth hear Jesus read from Isaiah and say, this has been fulfilled, and they hear him talk about the year of the Jubilee, the year of the Lord's favour, they know that this is this big Old Testament hope that they've been waiting for, for this new era that's going to come, this final setting free of slaves, this final wiping away of debts, coming of the kingdom moment. Do you see? It's not just that one year, it's this promise and hope of this, this new era. And we're calling it the best year ever, because it's the, the year, the time of God's favour, of salvation, of rescue, of God ruling the world, fixing it. And Jesus says in verse 21, this is being fulfilled, this year has come right now with him. He's saying, I am starting the best year ever. It comes with my arrival, and here I am. So I've got a question for you. Are you still waiting for God to do something? Maybe you've grown disillusioned with God. You think he's standing there with arms folded while you're struggling down here on earth. He's not got his arms folded. He's not forgotten us. Jesus has started the best year ever. The era of God's favour and rescue has come now with Jesus. So that's the first bit. Jesus starts the best year ever. And we're going to find out more as we go along what that year looks like. Next bit. Jesus starts the best year ever with more people than ever. So who is the best year ever for? Have a look at those verses. Verse 18. Um, he, he proclaimed good news to the poor. Uh, proclaimed freedom for the prisoners. Recovery of sight for the blind. Set the oppressed free. So who are these people? Well, these different Categories um, represent the vast array of people in the world who need God's rescue and reign. I don't remember at school uh, the traumatic time in a sports where you had to pick teams and you had the two captains. Did you, did you have this? Um, and and it's, it's brutal because you've got everyone and they start with the best, don't they? And they pick, and like, all right, I'm going to have Neil because Neil's really good. And like, we knew you were going to choose Neil. And then there's Phil. Little Phil, kind of hiding at the back and I get chosen last. And, you know, it's quite depressing, you know. But there's a very clear pecking order of, of who gets picked. Now, the poor, the prisoners, the oppressed are the people who get picked last. The overlooked in our world. No one picks them, even though they're the most needy. In a worldly kingdom, this group of people have no place, do they? But God's kingdom is for them. For more people than ever. So you've got to have no money in the bank and be incarcerated to be in God's kingdom? Not quite. That's not what it's saying. See, it can't just mean uh, the kingdom is only for the physically blind and actual prisoners, because actually that makes God's kingdom very small. Uh, I'm sorry, you can't come in. You're not, you, you know, you can see. That'd be a little bit odd. That would really narrow God's kingdom. So what's going on? Well, together, these images tap into the full dimension of our brokenness as humans that we need rescuing from. These images actually describe all of us in different ways. Now, we saw in Isaiah 59, didn't we, those two dimensions of our brokenness, our sin against God and the resulting oppression and injustice in the way we treat each other. So who is the best year ever for? Well, it's for those of us who suffer that, those horizontal effects, that suffer the oppressive consequences of living in a world ruined by our sin against God. That's who the best year ever is for. Those of us in need of, of help from God. 
That's all of us, right? But there's something else going on here. The blind is very important. Because in Isaiah, the blind and the deaf, and the dumb as well, have both a physical and spiritual dimension. Have a look at this. This is from uh, Isaiah 42. Hear, you deaf. Look, you blind and see. Who is blind but my servant, that's referring to Israel, and deaf like the messenger I send? Who is blind like the one in covenant with me, blind like the servant of the Lord? You have seen many things, but you pay no attention. Your ears are open, but you do not listen. Do you see how God is using this image of blindness and deafness as a picture for their sin against God? They're listening, they have God's law and his word, but they don't listen. They see God, they have the temple and everything, but they don't perceive, they don't get it. So what does that tell us about Jesus? Well, he has come to heal blind people, and we see him do that. But also he's come to heal all of us who are spiritually blind, who do not see God as we should, who need our eyes and our ears opening to God's word. Do you see? Both dimensions are there. So let me summarize this bit. Who is God's kingdom for? Well, it's for the poor, the physically poor. God's kingdom is good news for the physically poor right now. God cares for them. And it's for all of us who, like the poor, know that we are needy, empty hands. The good news isn't you're going to get rich now. The good news is the kingdom of God is for anyone who knows their need in this world of injustice. Does that include you? Do you know your need? The good news is for the prisoners and the oppressed who need setting free not only from physical oppression, uh, the Israelites were under a Roman occupation, but the deeper oppression of sin and Satan's rule over our lives. We are all in that way prisoners. Think of all the ways you are captive to habits, ideologies, addictions, ways of thinking which rule you and which aren't of God in his kingdom. Jesus came for you. Does that include you? Do you need to set him free? It's good news for the blind. Jesus healed the physically blind. The new creation that Jesus will bring will bring restoration of sight to everybody who is blind now. Isn't that an amazing thought? We talked about that a few weeks ago. Seeing with, with healed eyes the face of Jesus. But also Jesus comes to give us spiritual sight. Do you need spiritual sight? This is the best year ever. Can you see it? For more people than ever, finally, in the kingdom of God, forever. Now, if we all want a better world, maybe Michael Jackson is right, that if you want to make the world a better place, you take a look at yourself and make that change, right? <laughs> that idea that you look at yourself and you be the... I went to see uh, Sylvia at the Old Vic uh, last night. Be the change that you want to see. That's the phrase over there. Be the change that you want to see. So why can't we bring the best year ever if we all want it so much? Well, the reason we can't bring it and we haven't achieved it after centuries and centuries and millennia is because we don't have the power or the authority to make it happen. Or the will, actually. We can't just make that change, Michael. It's not so easy. If we could, we'd have done it already. Okay, so what makes Jesus any different? The difference is he's the king of the kingdom of God. That's the difference. Kings and kingdoms have power 
an authority, don't they, to do something, to make that change, right? Kingdoms aren't just ideas and projects. A kingdom is a domain in which a king rules and there's a kind of way of life in that kingdom. That's why talking about the kingdom of God is so brilliant and we're going to see in next week, Jesus described that he came to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. So Jesus doesn't come to start an NGO or a charity or run for office. He comes to establish a kingdom which can make change. So where's the king? Right here, verse 18. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Anointing is king language. That's what happens to the queen. You get a bit of oil and you get a crown. That's anointing. You are the king. Jesus is a king. So what? So was Caesar. He was the king. Well, he's anointed though, just not with some oils. The spirit of the Lord is on me. Okay, so Jesus is divinely anointed with the Holy Spirit. So he's the divine king, which if you want to go back and read from the beginning of Luke to this point, everything has been saying he's divine, he's divine, he's the king, he's the king on David's throne. So Jesus is the son of God, he's this kind of prophet who's come to proclaim, and he's the king of the kingdom of God. And he is here. Which means the best year ever and ever isn't some kind of another effort of someone trying to look at himself and make that change. The best year ever isn't a handout from God, it isn't just some good advice, or even, it isn't, the best year ever isn't even God just giving you some forgiveness. Forgive me for your sins, have a nice life. It's a kingdom with a king and a new way of living. The best year ever is about the arrival of the king of the world to open up a way for us to be citizens of his kingdom and enjoy his loving, amazing, best year ever, rule forever. Now there's something interesting that Jesus did. He missed out a line in what he read from Isaiah. He stopped short from what we read earlier in Isaiah. He talks about bringing the year of the Lord's favour, next line, to proclaim the day of vengeance from our God. Why did Jesus miss that out at that moment? I think because, now I know because, in this moment he is bringing the opportunity to get on board with God's kingdom. This is the day, the moment of salvation, the best year ever is coming. But make no mistake, the day of judgment is coming. The king will return, and all who have rejected the king won't be part of the best year ever. But now is the era where we can be rescued. Jesus starts the best year ever, with more people than ever, in the kingdom of God forever. I just want to finish with a couple of implications for us. Go back to the beginning where we're thinking about that world we hope for. If you could rule the world, what would you fix? What sadness would you undo? Make no mistake, the world we hope for, the world God has promised, has come with Jesus. In that synagogue in Nazareth, Jesus did actually start the best year ever. Which means the better world that we long for is a reality, not just an idea. I confess that I so often think about God's reign and rule in the kingdom as this kind of concept that I read about in the Bible. It's not a concept. It's real. And Jesus brings it. So when you scroll through the news and you wish something could change, it can because Jesus is here. If you personally feel the enduring pain of loss and failure 
and you wish to God something could happen that could change things, it has. The king has arrived. And when you know how deep your sin is against God, and how blind you are to him, and you think, what hope is there for me? It's here. It's Jesus. He is the hope that we need. And he's here. So we're going to enjoy over the next few weeks seeing him put this into practice, seeing that he really is the one who can bring his kingdom. And he's going to confront us. Where do we stand with him as the king? Let me pray. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your care and love for us down here in this world. We want to confess our sin, our blindness, that we are so spiritually blind that we should see, we should hear, but we, we just don't. We live our own way. We're so like Old Testament Israel. But thank you that you've come to give us sight. Thank you that you care for us in all the dimensions of our brokenness. Poverty and injustice and oppression. And you are the God who fixes that and who one day finally will fix it when Jesus returns. Thank you that you're the God who comes to bless us now through Jesus. And I pray now as we get into these Bible studies, you'd help us by your spirit in our hearts to respond in the right way to Jesus with humility and faith that he is the one who can change our eternities. Amen.